show it's monday it's the 28th of march year of our lord 2022 great to have you back hope you had a great weekend i'm andrew donaldson thank you so much for joining us with the most precious thing you have your time we got a couple things we want to cover today uh we're going to go down to georgia some domestic politics president trump held a rally in georgia how did that go how did that go over a lot of whispers about the crowd size a lot of whispers about the trump vendetta rod in georgia ain't going real well we'll touch on on that also uh in our final segment we always end with some good news chef jose andres and his world central kitchen mind-boggling numbers the amount of food they're making in ukraine we'll touch on that uh, great guest today one of our favorites Bert Lyko, uh, the editor-in-chief emeritus of Ordinary Dash Times, a attorney, a very smart individual, very wise man who's been writing a lot, wrote a piece on free speech at ordinary-times.com that absolutely lit up the commenting section. We're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about free speech, and we're going to go out in the deep water of it. Big grown folk discussion on free speech with our friend Bert Lyko on the program today. Uh, but let's start overseas. President Biden is in Poland and other areas of Europe. He's meeting with the G7. He's talking about the G20. He's trying to rally our NATO allies, make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, he gave a big speech in Poland. Now, a couple things happened in the speech. Folks that support President Biden thought it was the greatest speech ever and started comparing it to JFK in Berlin, uh, Reagan's tear down this wall speech. You go pick a couple of the real big speeches of recent memory. Everybody was comparing it to that. He also made a couple different gaffes during the speech and in other events of the day in which the White House had to do some correcting and walking back. Comp shop's been real busy. Things like saying uh, Vladimir Putin can no longer remain in power, and they had to make sure they say, no, 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 this isn't a policy of regime change. Uh, he told some U.S. troops, soon you'll be in Ukraine. Had to walk that back and say, so What's going on here? Um, everything in our media gets bifurcated. It has to be the best thing ever, the worst thing ever, because that's how you sell clicks. And people are just lazy and they have recency bias. So the newest thing that they like is the greatest thing ever. And the newest thing that they don't like is the worst thing ever. It was a good speech. It was the speech of the moment. It was the speech that needed to be given. The president delivered it well. He usually does set pieces like this. He usually does pretty well. Uh, as far as the Russia thing and Putin being in power, no, he shouldn't have said that. There's reports that it wasn't in the copy and that it was something he said offhand. No, you have to be more specific in your rhetoric like that. However, what he said wasn't wrong. No, Vladimir Putin does not need to be in power. He needs to not be there. Now, let's be grown folks here for a second. That doesn't mean we're going to go after regime change. That's a lazy term from people who don't want to delve into what that actually means. Of course, it is blatantly true that Vladimir Putin should not be in power. Now, there is an argument to say the United States president shouldn't say that because he's paranoid and will take that to mean that we're out to get him. Of course, on a practical level, he already thinks that. He's been saying it out loud for quite some time. What do you think he's going to do? Invade another country? Oh, wait, he already did that. At some point, we're going to, have to quit worrying about Vladimir Putin's feelings and just say things that are plain truth, like Vladimir Putin has no business being in power. He's an evil, 
wicked dictator. He's now a known and provable war criminal and should be brought to justice. So I don't really have any problem with what the president said, although I do agree he probably shouldn't have said it in that venue. We got to keep our bearing here, folks. President Biden did not give the greatest speech of all time. He also didn't give the worst speech of all time, and this wasn't the worst gaffe of all time. It's important to keep our bearings on these things because we need to keep our eye on the ball. There's a shooting war in Ukraine that was perpetrated by an evil dictator of Vladimir Putin against the Ukrainian people. It's going to have widespread consequences because there's no version of this in which Russia is not weakened going forward. It's going to change everything geopolitically. And when we start arguing about silly things about who had the better speech, and we start arguing about things like, oh, I love the president or, oh, I hate the president, it skews our perspective which we need to keep nice and level. President Biden is the president we got. It doesn't do any good complaining and wishing we had somebody else's president, or even worse, as we do in our media, pretending that the president we have is not who he is. We should be clear out about who he is. We have 50 years old book on Joe Biden. We know who he is. We know who he is at this stage of the game. He ain't changing. We should be clear-eyed, and we should go to war with the president we got. Or in this case, since we want to be specific, don't say go to war. People might get upset and think we're going to have regime change or World War III. That's not the case. You just deal with the person you have. See how easy that was? There was a slip, but we just pushed right by it because everybody that's an adult that has a functional frontal cortex knew it was a phrase of speech. If we have World War III, it's not going to be because of Biden's flippant comment that, by the way, was also correct. Keep President Biden in his proper place. That way we can support him as Americans and go forward on the world stage without overblowing what he is and what he is not. He did fine here. He's Joe Biden. He's our president. Let's keep everything in proper perspective. More Hurtel right after this. talk some domestic politics. Uh, Former President Trump was down in Georgia uh, over the weekend, had a rally, and it was one of the smallest ones he's ever had in Georgia. So what's going on here? Let's go big picture for just a second before we delve into the details of this particular rally. Remember, Georgia is kind of the central ground for what happened post-election. The Georgia runoffs were an utter disaster for Republicans. They lost both Senate seats in the state of Georgia to the Democratic Party, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, respectively. Both are now sitting senators. Uh, Senator Warnock is on the ballot for 2022 because he was filling in in a special election, so he's up already. Uh, There was other fallout. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp would not go along with the throw the election to Donald Trump plan, so Donald Trump is upset about that. Brad Raffensperger, we've covered that extensively to Georgia's Secretary of State of Elections. You know how bad that mess is. They're running against him as well. Jody Heiss, a former congressman. By the way, if you want to know some great stuff on Jody Heiss, uh, we wrote about him in Ordinary Times Magazine, Ordinary-Times.com. Go look that one up. Fantastic piece by one of our friends from down in Georgia. Uh, What's all this mean, though? Georgia is supposed to be the Trump vendetta ride. Georgia is where he's going to get his revenge. Problem is, Georgia's also where he exposed his weaknesses because, by everybody's estimations, Donald Trump suppressed his own voter turnout with the silliness of the Georgia runoffs and cost everybody the two Senate seats. Now, to be fair here, 
the two U.S. senators that the Republicans were running were both very, very weak candidates. Uh, Loeffler might be one of the worst retail politicians I've ever seen in my life. Uh, David Perdue is not very uh, impressive. In fact, Perdue is now running against Governor Brian Kemp, and Trump is endorsing him to the point he said at the end of the day, and I'll quote this directly, Mr. Future Governor, meaning David Perdue, I hope, David, you're going to be the governor or I just wasted a hell of a lot of time here tonight, end quote, from Donald J. Trump. Uh, well, Mr. Former President Trump, you are wasting your time because you're backing a lame horse. Uh, governor Brian Kemp is going to win that primary. He's going to win it by double digits. It may be Perdue might have a hard time keeping it from a 20 point win if he's not super careful. Now there's other races, the Senate race, Herschel Walker, big, big name in the state of Georgia, big name nationally is going to go up against uh, Raphael Warnock, but some of the down ballot stuff, it's a mess. The endorsements of president Donald Trump aren't going to mean a whole lot in cases like this because he's backing the wrong horses. He's backing people based on the vendetta ride and not based on politics. His viability going forward is heavily tied to how things like Georgia go in 2022. And as far as the President Trump train, as it once was called, looks, it's not going well, and it may very well derail in Georgia. And if he really does go to war with a Brian Kemp who wins his primary and Stacey Abrams wins the Georgia governorship, which is going to be a tough race regardless of what happens, I'm not sure folks forgive that. And they're sure not going to like it if Georgia goes even more blue then it's once red status. And if it's Donald Trump's fault, the party may start really re-examining some things. More hotel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Uh, been a minute since I've got to talk to this one, one of my favorite people on earth. He is the Editor-in-Chief Emeritus, that's a big fancy Latin word, which means used to be, but kind of still is, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Ordinary-Times.com, a good friend, uh, also an attorney, and somebody I lean on for opinions and off-the-record stuff all the time and advice, and I appreciate him greatly. Bert Lyko, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Andrew. I'm happy to come and offer a little bit of uh, age diversity after all of your young voices <laughs> guests. I can be a middle-aged voice for you. Uh, to be fair, I'm closer to you than I am to most of them at this stage of the game. But no, we last time I had you on, we were talking Jeopardy, which was fun. So more trivia stuff. Um, this time, a little more mm -hmm. serious topic, and you're going to have to use your lawyer hat a whole lot more. Free speech. Uh, everybody talks about it, but let's do what we normally do on our show. Let's get the nomenclature right. So free speech does have a legal definition, uh, and then it has the cultural definition. But when, from a lawyer point of view, what is the legal definition of free speech, at least as a concept? This is exactly how I would have begun uh, this topic also, Andrew. You can't confuse the cultural concept of free speech with the legal concept of free speech. Legally, free speech necessarily involves the government in some fashion. The only thing that we care about when we talk about your legal right of free speech is what the government does either to prevent or to permit you to make some kind of a statement. Now, if the government is not involved, then there is no, it doesn't make sense to talk about illegal right of free speech. You must have state action for that. Now, culturally, we think about free speech a lot differently. Um, and 
there, I'm a participant in the culture. The fact that I'm a lawyer doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. Um, everyone participates in the culture in one way or another, and everyone is subject to different kinds of cultural regulations. Uh, the word that political scientists use to describe those cultural regulations or rules, uh, we call them norms. Uh, these are just standards of what is generally expected behavior. So those are the two spheres where free speech matters. And the thing that we've got going on in our current paradigm of time is technology has completely changed how people's speech gets out. Now, everybody has a platform. Everybody has an amplification. You don't have to have a print media or a television media to get your voice heard. That has a lot of upside to it, obviously, with what we do where we get to write and commentate and things like that. But it's also brought a bunch of confusion because, like you said, state action is required to get into free speech things. And the Internet and the technology and the social media and all those things, in your opinion, just because you've been doing this longer than I have, has it has it muddled down what free speech is or has it amplified the existing problems of what free speech has already always had to deal with? It may be because I do a lot of my uh, social media interaction and a lot of my uh, in-person interactions with other lawyers. Uh, we're all pretty clear. It's not the case that, um, that all lay people are, and it's particularly not the case when you have political actors who may wish to uh, blur the distinction between those two spheres for, for some sort of advantage. Talking to Bert Lyko, do you think that here's the thing with it, though, too, is I think one of the main problems we got going on here is we want to substitute the tech companies for state actors. And when we start, I know there's a big regulation fight. We might get into that in a little bit later, but I think it's really, really important, especially from a legal definition and from a from a concept definition to understand that no matter how powerful a tech company gets, that's still not the government for a lot of really important and, frankly, good distinctive reasons, isn't it? Well, cons consider the most prominent example that I can think of, of a, uh, a tech company exercising censorship power. Back in late January of 2020, Facebook and Twitter pulled Donald Trump from their platforms. Uh, he was at that point still the sitting president of the United States, and uh, they decided that he had violated their terms of service too much, done too much with their platforms. Uh, that must have been a very hard call for them to make because uh, whatever they thought of him personally, whatever their political opinions were, uh, he was still president of the United States. And you don't deprive the president of the United States of an opportunity to communicate with people lightly. Uh, but that was not a governmental decision. In fact, Donald Trump was the head of the government at the time. He was quite upset about it, as you'll recall, and um, would have discouraged them in any way that he could. If I recall correctly, he made some threats and shook his fist rhetorically about that, although um, that was probably not a very credible threat for him to make. And the reason it wasn't a credible threat for him to make was Twitter and Facebook are private companies, they are private actors, and can decide for themselves who has and who does not have access to their service. That is actually their right of free speech. Part of free speech 
is the right of association. Now, you will include that in the First Amendment as against the government. So if you have a right of free association, that means you get to decide who you do business with. And they decided they didn't want to do business with Donald Trump anymore as their own private decision. No one forced them to do that. Um, customer, Other customers gave them pressure to do that, but they decided that on their own. Yeah. Talking free speech with our friend Bert Lyko. He, let me take it to an extreme example. Think about it in the terms of what we're seeing with Vladimir Putin in Russia right now. Go to any point in recorded human history and try to explain to somebody, hey, this company was able to make the head of the government not talk to the normal people and just try to watch them try to roll that through their head. Like that, that's something that's never, I, I would venture to say, that's probably never happened in recorded human history where whatever the main way of communicating to the people that they took a head of state and took them off the platform of the people. I don't know of any examples happening. So on one hand, I'm, I'm a freedom-loving guy. I'm usually an all-of-the-above guy when it comes to freedom and free speech. I didn't really like them doing it, but I understood it. But if I'm honest about it and if I'm consistent in that belief of freedom, can't you go to the other side of it and look at how normally dictators dictate to the media and they always try to control the media first? That's kind of a, in a kind of a bizarro way. Isn't that a triumph of freedom that I know it's a big, bad, evil company, quote unquote, but that we can depose our head of state from being able to communicate stuff like that. That's that's freedom, too, in a way, isn't it? I suppose if we wanted to stretch that a little bit, we could find examples of um, uh, companies, corporations, economic interests uh, combining with other governments to overthrow governments that uh, that were unfriendly to them or or their profit making interests. We could talk about the opium wars. We could talk about uh, Central America. Uh, we could stretch it a little bit further and talk about uh, different kinds of uh, Western revolutions going all the way back to the French and American revolutions. Uh, that would all be a very interesting historical discussion. Uh, but nobody got hurt when Twitter and Facebook deplatformed Donald Trump. That was not a violent act. Uh, Donald Trump is still every bit as healthy today as he was before he got deplatformed. Because you don't need social media to survive as much as that hurts some people to, to confront. If I were to try and uh, call that a, a triumph of freedom, uh, I think that's self-evident that it's a triumph of freedom. This is free association realized. Freedom of association is really the freedom to decide who you don't associate with. The cultural concept of freedom of speech is really you deciding what speech is out of bounds for you, what speech you don't want to hear, what speech you don't want to make. That's what it really is in reality. So, you know, when in, in action, your freedom of association is really your freedom of exclusion. If I don't like you, I don't have to be your friend. Now, Andrew, I do like you and, and, and we are friends, but that is... Uh, that is a choice that we both have made to be friends. So uh, multiply that by 350 million and you have social media. You don't have to follow anybody on Twitter. You don't have to subscribe to anybody's wall on Facebook. That's up to you to decide. And before we delve into the piece that you wrote about it, because it was a, 
uh, highly controversial piece. We it lit up the comment section, as they say. Um, but I I think we need to touch on a basic fundamental argument that has been going since there was two human beings talking to each other. It's certainly fundamental to the founding of America. Our founding fathers all dealt with this, and we all deal with it with social media daily. The fundamental question here with free speech is the fundamental question of rights is, okay, where does my rights start and where does your rights go to? And when they start to meet, that's the conflict, isn't it? Because there's no such thing as you having a right and me having a right and then being in a vacuum at some point, they're going to touch each other. And then that's where you have to start figuring out, okay, what's really a right or not, because it's starting to infringe on that other person. That's really the fundamental thing under here. And then freedom of speech debates kind of go under that subheading, don't they? Let me answer that question by asking you a question back. Um, I hate when you do this. (laughs) uh, And I invite your listeners to answer this question for themselves. After I pose the question, maybe hit the pause button and take 60 seconds and sort of mold this over in your mind. Um, Why is free speech valuable? That's a better segue than any way I can put it. Uh, So take a few minutes to think about that question Bert just posed. We'll be right back with Bert Lyko with more Hartel right after this. Let me answer that question by asking you a question back. Um, I hate when you do this. (laughs) Uh, And I invite your listeners to answer this question for themselves. After I pose the question, maybe hit the pause button and take 60 seconds and sort of mold this over in your mind. Um, Why is free speech valuable? Everyone you talk to from the United Nations and its Declaration of Universal Human Rights down to the rando sitting next to you at the bar who is six pints into it will tell you that free speech is a super important, super valuable thing, a bedrock part of our foundation. Why? What's it for? Taking a little bit of time to think about that, you might want to think about whether the answer is different when we're in the governmental sphere versus the cultural sphere. Why is it important the government not sanction your speech Versus why is it important that you have the cultural latitude to say certain things? Let me give you a list of answers people have given me to that question over the year. Um, um, Some of them say, and this is, I think, the most frequent response, that that question doesn't make any sense. Free speech is inherently valuable. It requires no further explanation. Of course, free speech is valuable. Of course, it's important. Can't you tell? It's free speech. I'm not sure that that is analytically right. You might disagree with me, and that is certainly your right. Um, The reason I don't think it's right is what makes something inherently valuable is it ultimately contributes to your happiness. The only thing that I think is truly inherently valuable is happiness. So maybe free speech is valuable because it helps us become happy. Uh, I don't know if that bears up to experiential analysis also. Uh, When we are talking about free speech, we are really talking about uh, how much you're willing to tolerate things that you don't like hearing. That's um, inherently an exercise that is calculated to make you unhappy. 
Maybe we have free speech because it makes us smarter, because it helps us learn things, because it helps us find truth. Uh, that's kind of the Jeffersonian model of it uh, that Jefferson threw out in his, uh, his declaration of religious freedom when he was governor of Virginia, that different ideas, uh, he was speaking specifically about religion, but it applies to everything. Uh, different ideas will clash with one another, and the strongest one will come out. I wonder about that, too. That might not be right, because what that really tells us is what is the most popular idea. That's not necessarily the correct idea. A little less common, people say free speech helps us uh, decide how to govern ourselves. Free speech lets us have other rights. So if we have other rights, we can't really use them well unless we have freedom of speech to talk about them. Here, I think we're getting much closer to the mark. If you have the right to vote, for instance, that is kind of a meaningless right unless you know what different candidates stand for, what they're going to do if you give them power. So free speech helps us govern ourselves. That is an answer I kind of favor. And of late in life, I've become kind of cynical, and I've sort of decided maybe we have free speech because it's just easier than any other way of conducting ourselves. If we allow ourselves the notion that you're just going to have to tolerate some stuff you don't like, uh, that means you have to invest a lot less resources, a lot less emotion into responding to something that you don't like. It's cheaper. It's faster, it's easier, um, and that might make you happier if you can shrug off something and just say, well, he's just exercising his right of free speech. He's wrong as hell, but, uh, but whatever, that's what people do. And Those are ideas of why we care about free speech, why it's important. And that gets and that, to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, to conclude, um, that is uh, going to govern how you respond to speech you don't like. And to go to part, the second part of what you were asking when you told us to all pause for a moment, the difference between the cultural side and the government side is when you get into tolerance and you get into things like that, the, the way I go to it is um, I, when I disagree with Bert about whatever that, you know, uh, Portland Timbers is the best MLS team or whatever we're going to fight about online on Twitter, uh, and I want to say somebody else is a better team, you know, we, that level of tolerance is one thing. I don't have an armed enforcement part of my repertoire like the federal government does or like a government does where they, if they set a standard, now you're into enforcement. I don't have enforcement. Twitter doesn't have enforcement. Uh, Instagram don't have enforcement. They have terms of service. They can deny you service, but that's not really enforcement. That's, that's that injury thing you opened up with. So when once you get the government involved, and we've already established that free speech is has a governmental element to it, especially when we're talking about it as a right, if you have enforcement abilities, if you have prosecutorial abilities, that's when this starts changing in the conversation, isn't it? Sure. If you say something as admittedly boneheadingly dumb as there's a better MLS team than the Portland Timbers, then... Um, I lack the ability to send the Portland Police Bureau out to arrest you for that. Uh, the mayor of Portland lacks the ability to do that. Uh, 
And, and if some police officer on his own initiative goes out to do that, well, he's committing a crime. Now, you're allowed your uh, very, very wrong opinion that there's a better MLS team than the Timbers. Um, and to that point, though, if I say I'm going to shoot the president, especially somebody like me who has a platform, if I, if I say that on the radio, I guarantee you I will get a Secret Service call because they monitor certain things. Or if I put that on a, on a tweet or something, yeah, that's free speech. I can say that. But the enforcement arm of the government, especially something like the Secret Service, they're going to make a phone call and check in on you on that because they do have that right and that authority, legal and otherwise, right? Well, it turns out actually shooting the president is a crime and a pretty serious one. So someone who announces their intent to commit a crime is going to attract governmental attention. This is not a violation of your right of free speech. That is investigation of a crime. This and, and that's the extreme example, of course. Um, let's take the Internet meme that everybody uses wrong. Uh, we've got it on our M. Carpenter all star list of things that drive her crazy, <laughs> along with uh, HIPAA and my apostrophe <laughs> usage. But shouting fire in a crowded theater. This is the classic example of free yes. speech. Most people get this wrong for a lot of reasons. Just real quick, recap that for us. The argument of because there's actually been this is this there's case law on this, believe it or not. It's not just a meme. They they actually hashed this out. Uh, fire in a crowded theater and free speech. Well, the phrase you uh, one may not shout fire in a crowded theater comes from a dissenting opinion in a free speech case dating back to the 1920s. So this is almost a hundred years old. Uh, and bear in mind, back in the 1920s, fires breaking out in theater was a thing that happened with some frequency and people got hurt a lot. Fire codes have improved, uh, fire safety has improved, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but that was never actually the law. Uh, the law would be today, you can shout fire in a crowded theater under a lot of circumstances. There are times it might be illegal and there are times it might not be. So we've got to look at, do you legitimately believe there is a fire going on? Is a fire really going on? How do people react to that? Taking that statement in context, is that the sort of thing that is likely to cause a public hazard, a public danger? We don't know that one way or the other. Uh, so the real answer to to the question, can you shout fire in a crowded theater or not, is I need more information to answer that question. How much does, I, this is probably not the right term, so you give me a better term, but when we're talking about free speech, the circumstances, because we've already talked about intent, intent actually has a legal definition. You go to court, most court cases, you're trying to figure out intent in a lot of cases, whether it's case law, criminal law, whatever, you're looking for intent. How much of free speech is circumstances? Because, you know, if I say, we joke at ordinary times about every now and then you write, well, something got said on the internet pieces. That's kind of like the, the lowbrow stuff we have to do sometimes, <laughs> but that's a circumstances speech. It's just, well, somebody said something, everybody going to react to it. That's one circumstances. But then you have things like January 6th where you have, okay, did this speech incite a riot or you have the fire in a theater? Did this speech cause physical bodily harm to people? How much of it is really figuring out the circumstances around the, the speech and then you're really getting into, you know, thoughts and will and this kind of nebulous area of, you know, reading minds and hearts? I guess the right answer to that question is context matters intensely. There's a phrase that comes up in 
free speech law. It comes up in a variety of other kinds of legal spheres as well, uh, called the totality of the circumstances. What the courts will do is rely on uh, the different parties to bring up different circumstances and put something that is in question fully in context. Uh, intent is likely to be one of those things. Uh, if you're talking about things like potentially inciting unlawful activity, potentially inciting imminent unlawful activity to meet the Brandenburg standard, then you need to also think about what the reasonable ordinary person hearing the speech would react with. That it, it, It's not so much the speaker's intent in that situation as uh, what the listener's likely reasonable response would be. So, um, I don't know if that directly answers your question, uh, but context matters intensely. And we'll continue our conversation on free speech with our friend Bert Lyko right after this on Her Tip. Let's use an example that you used writing in your piece at ordinary-times.com, which we love when we get you in uh, and very much appreciate it uh, from your semi-retirement from blogging, we'll call it your uh, productive <laughs> retirement. Um, the New York Times editorial on free speech uh, got a lot of reaction from all across the spectrum. I think everybody agreed that it probably wasn't worded as well as you would think the editorial board of the New York Times talking about free speech should write something. I think everybody agreed on that. And then everybody dissented from there to what part was good and what part was bad. But they really got they they kind of got neck deep in the cancel culture stuff because of the way they phrased it. And I'll just read the quote because it's the quote everybody else talked about. And you hit it on your piece. And they said, uh, for all the tolerance and enlightenment does the New York Times that modern society claims. Americans are losing hold of a fundamental right as citizens of a free country, the right to speak their minds and voice their opinions in public without fear of being shamed or shunned. That last part is where they got into a whole bunch of trouble, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's fear of being shamed and shunned. Um, I'll just give you the floor on it because fear of being shamed and shunned is something everybody understands what they're saying, but it's super nebulous. It's super... Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? It's really subjective. Um, and as far as I know, you do not have a right to not be mocked and shamed and shunned from society that I am aware of. Is that how it landed with you? Uh, yeah, I thought the New York Times was dead wrong about that. You have never in your life had the social or cultural right to be unafraid of being shamed or shunned. Never have, never will. The whole point of having a culture is a culture sets boundaries on our behavior. It sets guidelines for our behavior. When you deviate from those, you're going to get pushback from other people. You're going to get people pointing out in one way or another, and it's generally not going to be a very friendly way, that you are behaving in a way that they consider unacceptable. Political scientists have a term for people who say things that are or are not acceptable. They, the, one political scientist, a uh, uh, fellow named Overton, came up with the concept of the Overton window. You can say something like, uh, Bert, you know, I really don't think the Timbers are the best team in the MLS. And that's going to be an acceptable thing to say. 
I'm going to respond, Andrew, you fool. Of course, they're the best team in the MLS. And then we're going to argue about why one of us is more right than the other. That's an acceptable thing. We're not expected to get into a fight about that. If I were to say to you, Andrew, there is a labor shortage going on in this country right now. A lot of companies are having trouble filling valuable jobs. And I think the answer is we should bring back slavery, but you know, only for the bad people. Well, this is going to be an unacceptable idea. This is kind of out of bounds. It is out of the Overton window. Uh, I do not advocate a return of slavery, of course. No one should. That's what it means to be out of the Overton window. That is out of bounds. You would react badly. You wouldn't say, Bert, you fool, the way that you would if we were arguing about soccer. You would say, Bert, you're a monster. And you'd be right. That would be a monstrous thing to suggest with sobriety. So you've never had a right to be free from social sanction if you say something monstrous. And there is no way to construct a legal right of free speech. There is no way to construct a norm of free dialogue that happens culturally that does not incorporate some kind of a sanction for saying something monstrous. I have a right to react to your monstrous statement by shaming and shunning you. That is my right of free speech. Let me let me roll this back for just a second. I'm going to ask you an impossible question, but it got posed to me by someone that's not online, so I'll, I, I won't reveal them here. But it really made me think about this in a in a different way. And this isn't a right or wrong statement. I'm just this is a challenging my own thinking. And then you tell me if it's crazy or not. But it got posited to me that and this is a loaded term and I'm going to use it on purpose because I know it's a loaded term. But is it true just in the United States of America in the year of our Lord 2022 with all the social media and all the freedoms and all the things that go into being an American that is on has the capability and the social standing to be online regularly? Have we just become so privileged with saying whatever we want, whenever we want, with any, without any consequence of any meaning whatsoever, that we're just culturally not really well equipped to understand a concept like free speech as it was originally intended, like the founding fathers where they're talking about printing presses and such. I am going to disagree with what, at least what I understand that sentence to be. I, I think that if you get people to stop and think with a moment's worth of clarity, they will find a distinction between what the government does, and what other people do. It doesn't take a lot of work to remind people of that distinction. Uh, you know, you say it on the program all the time, freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequence. And you're right. And you're so obviously right about that, that it's going to be a universal truth. I think what we are seeing happening in the culture now I think what we have seen happen in the culture a generation ago when I was in college, and instead of calling it cancel culture, we called it political correctness. Um, or you know, a generation before that, when if you were a young Republican for Nixon, you couldn't get a date uh, in college, uh, except if you're going to date another young Republican for Nixon. Or you go back a generation before that to when William F. Buckley Jr., one of the 
uh, founders of the modern conservative movement, wrote and published his first book, God and Man at Yale. As a student at Yale in the late 1940s, Buckley felt oppressed, shunned, mocked by his professors, by his peers for expressing uh, what were then the, the politically conservative constellation of political views and for being open about his uh, strong uh, Christian faith. Uh, he felt that these things were held up for ridicule and that he was shunned because of them. Um, this is nothing new. Uh, Bill Buckley felt that as a college student in the 1940s, I don't think we're experiencing anything particularly new right now for people to feel shunned or mocked because they hold unpopular views. Unpopular views are um, unpopular. All right, Counselor, since you left it dangling out there, I will ask the obvious question. Um, you ended your piece with something I say all the time. I'll paraphrase it to the way I say it. Mm -hmm. Human nature is undefeated. Um, this is something we're all going to deal with. But since you left it dangling out there, I will ask you the question, how do we highlight those differences in a productive way? so that they can have the, the conversation at least, and we can have the discussions back because we just seem to skip over the differences and go right back to the fighting. How do we highlight those differences you were talking about, do you think, in a productive way? There's lots of ways that we can go about doing it. And um, I think the best option for someone who wants to express a point of view they believe will be unpopular is to do it in a formal sort of way, to do it in a way saying, here's an idea to consider. You probably won't like it, but here's a way to go. And to, to attach a degree of formality to it, to attach a bit of disclaimer to it right away. If you announce, I would like to discuss this idea, that helps soften the blow a little bit. There are other ways too. There's different other kinds of cultural signals that you can send. Uh, but this is a matter of your mastery of the culture. Uh, I think phrasing your idea that is likely to be unpopular uh, in the form of, I would like to discuss this, is a strong cultural signal that you're not trying to offend someone, but you're really trying to debate a, a concept. This is how we've had a lot of things that used to be culturally unthinkable push that Overton window to one side or the other. It used to be unthinkable that gay people could be married to one another. It used to be unthinkable that we would have open discussion on the floor of Congress about legalizing marijuana. And maybe one day we actually do it. Uh, now it's thinkable that such a thing like that could happen. I think that sort of thing starts at the cultural level, and it starts with people making formal invitations to have a debate and others deciding I will participate in that debate. Bert Lyko, he participates in debates when I ask him to, and I appreciate him greatly. Somebody I really pay attention to. I respect his opinion. He's been uh, a great sounding board for me over the years. Let folks know where your social media is. You write with Ordinary-Times.com infrequently now, but there is a vast article uh, archive of your writing over the years. I encourage people to go read. I know I do. I always search it from time to time. Let folks know where they can find you on social media and what you have going on, my friend. Well, you can certainly search for all of those uh, articles that I wrote. I think there's about 700 of them uh, left over from, uh, from, from many years of writing at ordinary-times.com. Uh, my most recent one discussing this very subject 
has become, I think, the most commented article that I've written. And if it wasn't, uh, the one that beats it out would be another one about political correctness that I wrote uh, 10 years ago. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at, at Bert Licko, uh, B-U-R-T-L-I-K-K-O. And uh, that's, uh, that's where you will find my random musings and uh, explanations for why the Portland Timbers are the best team in Major League Soccer. One thing I will give you on Portland, it is a fantastic food city, which means you are a valuable founding member of Twitter Supper Club because y'all got some fine eating up there in the Pacific Northwest, indisputably one of the great food cities of the world, not just America. One of the reasons you chose to move there. You can read those articles at Ordinary Times, too. Uh, Bert, I appreciate you so much, my friend. Tough topic, and I appreciate you explaining it to me like I'm five. Thank you, sir. It is absolutely my pleasure, Andrew. Come on out here and I will make you fat with our wonderful Portland food. I can't. I, I want to do the food trucks. Uh, you've heard of pub crawls. They have food truck crawls in Portland. They're so well known for them. We got to do one of those, my friend. We'll talk soon. Have you back again, my friend. Thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Ah, what about a herd tale? You know, we always try to end the program on a happier note or a lighter hearted note. Uh, this is a great story. World uh, Central Kitchen. This is Jose Andreas charity organization. They have been absolutely all over the place. If something's going on in the headline, they usually show up uh, inside Ukraine. We are in 21 cities, Andreas said on CNN. Obviously, Liv has become our headquarters inside Ukraine, but we're delivering food every day to places like Odessa, Kiev, and other places. World Central Kitchen is distributing more than 290,000 meals daily and more than 1,000 locations in six countries. That's the heroes that I see in Ukraine. And what you see is everybody doing whatever they can to provide comfort and relief to fellow Ukrainians, not only inside of Ukraine, but the first moment I arrived, I saw Poland. I was able to tell the president and the prime minister of Poland that the Polish people within hours, they were in every border crossing, waiting with baby food formula and hot soup, Andreas added. The temperatures were freezing. Women and children were walking across the border, and they were being welcomed, at least with a message of, we care, we're going to take care of you. You're not going to be alone in this dark hour. Andreas said he told President Biden that the Ukrainian people need all the help we can give them. Quote, they are defending their country. They are fighting for democracy. They are fighting for freedom. At least America and the rest of the free world we can do for them is to be next to them. Uh, that was my very simple and direct message in his speech on Saturday. President Biden applauded Andreas for his effort to feed refugees during the crisis. Uh, really hard not to love this guy. He shows up every natural disaster. Anything in the news, they show up and they do what we always advocate to do uh, on a lesser scale about turning down the noise on politics and stuff. They start cooking food. Uh, if you can feed people, you go a long way towards helping all their other problems. You don't solve them all. But if they don't eat, uh, the rest of it doesn't really matter. He's taking care of that. He has organized thousands and thousands of people to serve hundreds of thousands of meals. God bless him. Great thing. Chef Jose Andres. That'll do it for her tell. Uh, hope you all had a great weekend. We've got a loaded week of shows planned for you. Can't wait to share them all with you. So make sure you're subscribed. However, you're watching on YouTube or listening on any of the podcasting platforms, Got to be subscribed. Uh, that makes sure you don't miss a single thing we do. The weekday show every morning by the time you wake up, if you're on the East Coast of the U.S. 
or around the world, tea time in England or supper time out. If you're in Southeast Asia or Australia, you'll have a brand new episode of Hertel every day, twice on Sunday show. We just did it. If you missed it, go back and watch it. Also, all the long form podcasts. Don't miss anything we do. We want you to catch all of it. Also, it lets us know you're out there and watching. So wherever you are, cross street around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow for more Hertel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.